as we conclude our last uh, church today. And so uh, the first one would be we studied was Ephesus. Uh, it was one author uh, kind of described each one of these, and so I'm going to read those. He calls this the church of loveless orthodoxy. That means they had all of their doctrine right, but their affection was gone. There was not this heartwarming desire for Christ and his people. The second one, in Smyrna, the church of impending martyrdom. It was the challenge, maybe, that you'd say that they were facing was to remain faithful in the midst of persecution. The third one, Pergamum, the church of indiscriminating tolerance, he called it. It was the willingness to live with gross doctrinal infidelity, meaning that they were unfaithful to the teaching of Scripture and they were willing to stay there. The fourth, Thyatira. This church was idolatrous and, and they were compromising, really, in, in a, a way he calls it the church of idolatrous compromise. They were practicing kind of religious pluralism, meaning that they were saying, well, we can worship Christ plus and they were spending their lives really uh, kind of like saying, we got to stay in this world and work in this world. And so we will uh, embrace other uh, teachings or other errors. And so we can continue forward. The next church, the church in Sardis, the church of inanimate spirituality. The way that this, he describes this is it was the muting of gospel distinctives because of desire to image success in the eyes of the culture. And so they were doing whatever they could to, to really like the culture to love them. Uh, we talked about in our, in our context where there's what is really big was a seeker friendly movement. And it was like, what will make the church like us? And so that's what we will do. Then we had the church in Philadelphia, the church of persevering witness. It was a church that by Jesus that he called them to hold on to the gospel in, in the face of opposition. And they were holding fast to the gospel. And then we get to the last church today, the church of Laodicea. And he calls this the church of nauseating ineffectiveness. It was diluted. It had this kind of diluted self-sufficiency, spiritually speaking, that had developed as a consequence of their great economic prosperity. And some people, if you talk to them, people that have studied these churches say, man, we might most identify with the church in Laodicea. I, I think really we know this, but these churches, this was written to the seven. The idea of seven is the idea of completeness. In a way, it's speaking to all churches throughout all generations. There were certainly specific churches, but throughout all generations, uh, churches need to hear the words that Jesus speaks about these individual churches. And certainly, there will be times maybe in your life personally or corporately as a church or as we look at the church uh, broadly where we would say, wow, this seems to really characterize the area that we live in. So, Laodicea uh, is facing a struggle and their struggle is the temptation that, you, that comes with wealth. Their um, passion for Christ was waning as a result of their, their, their self-sufficiency. They thought that they had it all figured out, that they were good, that they were in a good place because they were kind of financially, I guess you would say, successful. They believed that their prosperity gave them a level of autonomy that was destructive to their spiritual growth. And so you kind of see that. And I don't know if you've ever met someone who is uh, 
has grown up with uh, resources and they're wealthy maybe or uh, and, and they've kind of never wanted for anything and maybe they're in that condition even at that moment and there's a level of pride that can come with that uh, they do not need anyone or help from anyone and they really don't want it and it's one of those things sometimes that you see over time that can develop in someone and it's really uh, one of those things where we say that that's even though you might say well that's just in this this world, it's not, you know, they could still be right with God and they can be. It's not that financial success is, is evil or that God is not pleased with blessing people in different ways. Some people are blessed with great trials, uh, the suffering churches that we see here. Some are blessed with poverty, but they know the wealth that comes with knowing the Lord intimately in a way that maybe some of us will never see. And yet th- this church, the wealth had somehow corrupted them. I, I, I think about, often when I'm thinking about financial uh, things, I think about the proverb in Proverbs 38 and 9. This is what it says. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It's it's one of those things where you just have to say, and this is what the proverb, this is what the, 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 the writer is saying. He's saying, wealth has great temptation, poverty has great temptation, and he says, Lord, just take both of those away and let me be provided for. It's kind of the idea that he's getting at. And I think it is one of those things where we have to say wherever we find ourselves. I mean, the reality is we're not saying, hey, everybody should be, uh, you know, everyone should, should have this amount of money and it should be that way across the board. That's not what we're saying. We're, I, I think what we see here is that there are dangers wherever you find yourself. And, and we have to really be careful and you have to be aware of those. Laodicea is in danger because they are trusting in a counterfeit Savior that will ultimately lead to their ruin. They believe this counterfeit Savior is the resources that they have, and they think that they are bulletproof, and so they do not have to rely on God. And that's just something we always have to understand and grasp and think through. Now, let's go on to chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, we usually do this because it's helpful to understand uh, that this town of Laodicea, just want to give you a little bit of information. It is southeast, 43 miles southeast of Philadelphia. It's 11 miles west of, of uh, a town called Colossae, and you probably, Colossians, we've studied that, and six miles south of High. I always, I knew I was going to say this. I, I can't even say it right now. I'll tell you how to pronounce that later. But um, I just like slip my mind and I always think, oh man. And anyway, okay. So it, it's in this place where, where there are multiple like cities and towns around them. Uh, what we find out if you were kind of studying on, on this, uh, that what happened was the Romans came in at some point and they built cities where basically uh, they, they were at a crossroads. And we even hear people talk about this like, boy, when Texarkana gets this interstate and that interstate and this interstate, it's going to blow up. You know, it's going to be crazy. Uh, you kind of hear people talk about that because we say that what happens and specifically here is that that became a center where they would do a, a lot of different business and commerce was really big. Uh, Laodicea also became um, 
with that, with them growing, kind of, they became wealthy, and, and, and they were kind of they were known for a number of things. One was uh, the wool industry; uh, it, it really flourished, and, and they really they they were known for their black wool. They exported it. Uh, they were also uh, made garments from these things that, like, from the wool and other different fabrics. They made garments, and so uh, people would kind of know them for that, and it it, it grew. Basically, the town grew. The wealth in the town grew. Also, uh, they were they they kind of had this, uh, um, and I, I don't know what it would have been like or exactly, but they had this eye salve that was uh, also exported, and people used it, and it was supposed to be very very effective uh, for people's eyes. They had a medical school there that specialized in ear and eye care, uh, and this ointment that kind of went along with it. Uh, the school also became kind of world famous as a result of that. Uh, they also had the thir- like a, a banking industry that was very great. And I was thinking about that uh, this week about how today when we think about banks, uh, we 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 think there's the little small banks and there's not very many of those. And there's these gargantuan banks that um, you know they, they have thousands of locations. But often I don't think in terms of like. What would it have been like for a banking industry in a town to kind of grow and they were doing it and people would like travel because that they had this money and the ability to kind of finance larger projects. That's kind of the idea here. It's not just that it's across the world. Everybody had, you know, those banks, but that that bank there actually provided for many people in the region. And so they did uh, a lot of different things. It's interesting, too, that they, they become so wealthy that when that earthquake, we've talked about the earthquake that hit Philadelphia and, and, and these other towns, uh, when it kind of really destroyed the town, uh, the Roman emperor kind of calls up and says, hey, we'll send some funds your way. And they say, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it ourselves. You know, and so that kind of rugged self-sufficiency bled over. Now, let's just talk about that just real quick. Did you know that your Christianity does not escape, does not escape like some of the influences that you grew up in in this culture? You ever thought about that? Have you ever talked to people that have lived in other parts of the world, other Christians from other parts of the world? Their ideas about walking and living the Christian life sometimes looks a little bit different than yours. And I think it's important for us sometimes to stop and say, we don't escape. We don't escape some of those things. Our world informs us, and the reality is sometimes it really gets us to the point where we can't really see very clearly. And you'll see that in, in this, this study, he's going to tie what was going on in that culture and what's going on in that church and how closely sometimes uh, the struggles are the same there. Now, we see about Jesus here, is, and, and he's going to reveal something about him. And that's what he does throughout. Each one of those churches, he'll reveal something about himself that will help this church in, in moving forward in the way that they need to move forward. So this is what Jesus says. He, is described about, he describes himself in this way as the Amen. Uh, in the Hebrew, it, the, the equivalent is faithful and true, and that's what you see in this text. There's only one other place where someone has given the name, the Amen. The Father, God the Father, is given that name in Isaiah 65, 16. You know, we always think of like 
amen is kind of something that can be used as in the affirmation. Somebody in a congregation in some churches, uh, they'll like as you're preaching or whatever, it'll be like, amen, amen. They're affirming what you're saying. But here, I think the, the emphasis is on him being the unchanging one, the amen, the faithful and true one. Second Corinthians says about Jesus, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. That's kind of where you would use amen in a way where you're affirming what he says. All the promises come through him because he is the faithful and true amen, the faithful and true witness. In his incarnation, we see Jesus faithful even unto death. He was faithful to the Lord. He accomplished the plan God had for him. Now, why would he use this language to them? I think it's what you see is in verse 19, they're failing to, to they're, they're living outside of the way God has for them. They're not walking as faithful witnesses and they need to repent. It makes Jesus sick as the faithful witness who has called his people to follow him in faithfully witnessing. They're not doing that and it makes him sick. Now, notice the next thing you see about Jesus. He is the beginning of God's creation. Some people might say that this is talking about the very beginning that Jesus is the one who creates and all things come through him. That's a very true statement. But you could also say, because in light of what we're talking about in Revelation, we may be dealing with the issue of Jesus uh, being the beginning of the new creation. And, and you might say, well, maybe it's kind of playing on both of those ideas. That he is the foundation because of his faithful witness, he is the one who has earned the right to usher in the new age. He is the firstborn, Colossians says, he is the firstborn from the dead. And in his birth, or his coming forth as the one who died and rose again, so we will experience this new world, the new age that he has brought about. He's birthed himself. The church needs to walk in this, this resurrection power. They need to walk in this new creation. They were spiritually dead. Now they're being brought to spiritual life. And now they're kind of falling back into ways and patterns that they should never be in. In order for them to be effective, they must be revived, if you will, brought back to the former ways that they once in in a way coming back from where they once were and 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 so i think it's important you know back in the old days uh people would have church revivals and and i remember in my mind debating what was that were those revivals for the church where the church is kind of revived uh, or were were those like evangelistic rallies and and sometimes depending on where you were what church you were in you know it, it it depended. But I think the idea of the church being revived here is something that we need to think about. We need to pray for that. God, bring revival in our hearts. There, we've gotten cold or we're indifferent or we think we're like really stable and we think we have everything together and we don't have any worries and we don't need our Savior like we did before. Bring us back to where we once were. Now, Notice the evaluation in verse 8 and 9. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. 
So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus again shows he can look into the heart. He can see what is going on in you. Like even today, sometimes like, you know, you come to church, you put on a good face, you're really happy, or you're saying everything's great. Or maybe you walk around and, and, and you kind of are, are, are not that way. I mean, I don't know, you have different like faces you put on, but Jesus can look deep within the heart and see what is taking place. And he says that they are neither hot nor cold. If you've studied your Bible long or you've been through this study before, you know a little bit about the situation here. That city had two neighbors, um, and, and those two neighbors both had water sources. One had hot waters, the other one had cold waters. The hot waters were considered like of some medical benefit that people would go and, and maybe like the... Um, the pools that people do like at the hot springs where you got in there and they were bringing healing to you. And then the others had this, this cold water and it would be refreshing. And so you had both of those things taking place. Well, this place, Laodicea, is in the middle. And they don't really have a good water source. And when it's piped in, it comes to them and it's kind of dirty and lukewarm. If you took a big gulp of it, it would make your stomach sick. And so that's kind of what's going on here. Jesus is taking that geographical kind of location and he's saying, your town, you know what this is like. And that's what you are like. You are mirroring what is taking place there. So, evidently, the, and this is just something I think you could say, the church was evidently not identifying faithfully with Christ in their culture. They were not faithful in their witness uh, like Christ had been. They were not providing refreshment for the spiritual weary, nor healing for the spiritual, spiritually sick. It's just really, I mean, that's important. You know, that, that's something you have to ask yourself. Like, what benefit are you? Like, in your life today, are you actually, like, bringing blessing to people? Are you actually being a blessing? Sometimes you meet people and they'll be like, well, nobody's doing for me. No, Listen, are you doing that? Are you actively being a blessing? Are you seeking to be nourishing or bringing refreshment to people, bringing healing to people? Are you seeking out to, to live in such a way that your witness would bring people to, to spiritual vitality? That's something we always have to, to ask ourselves. Are we being totally ineffective or are we effectively doing what we're called to do here, both being hot and cold, we're blessing. That, that's, what, that, that's, that's the idea here. You are blessing other people. They, they need to wake up. They need to become effective and useful. So, they thought they were. That's what's so crazy. They thought they were in a good place. They, they thought that, that their, their state right then, because they were prospering materially they had much to say oh the lord had really blessed them and we sometimes we kind of say that be like well the lord really blessed us and so we and we talked about this in our study it's like so we've indulged ourselves even more because of his blessing you can have all the appearances of thriving as a church in the 21st century but if you're not a faithful witness of Christ, you've missed it. You can have the appearance. That's what Jesus, Jesus has stripped away the idea of appearing to be very successful. He, he, he doesn't, 
He sees beyond. He, he really can. He can go to the curtain and pull it back and see what's going on. It's not hard for him to do so. So verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. This is, this is such a powerful thing here because you have a tendency to put that together. We have physical prosperity equals spiritual blessing. That's what we can do often in our lives. Throughout the revelation, the rich and wealthy, and this is not always, and we're going to talk about that just for a minute, but throughout the revelation, the rich and wealthy prospered by their association with the evil world system. They thought that they were okay because, again, they, but, but the reality is throughout the revelation, it's saying, no, that you're not okay. It's a consistent theme that throughout Scripture, and that's why we have to be careful. You say, well, does that mean you cannot make money? You cannot be wealthy? No, that's not what that means. It's saying that there is, there is this kind of connection sometimes with someone doing that in the wrong way, being successful financially in the wrong way. And then the issue in the Bible is what you do with what God blesses you with. That, that's what you see kind of all over. The Bible doesn't endorse uh, poverty. He actually blessed some people with financial gain in great ways. But the question is how we use what God has given us. One author said a Christian's prosperity is measured by how much he gives rather than by how much he has. I think that's a very important place to be to stay. Listen, wherever and that's what we have to do. Most people would say we in this congregation in, in, in America, we are a wealthy people, uh, materially wealthy. And so the issue here, I think, is we have to stop and say, OK, what are the dangers of wealth? What are the dangers of wealth? What can this produce in me? One of the things the scripture tells us is it warns that the wealthy had better make sure that they are rich in good deeds. But I think this church in Laodicea, where they, they, the issue that Jesus is addressing for them is that they were likely prospering due to their participation in idolatrous and ungodly business practices, and Christ exposes this truth. So I think that's kind of what we want to see. We want to understand and grasp. Now, notice what Jesus says. He goes on to say, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You know what's crazy about that? This just so blows my mind. It, in that town, we just talked about it, but you'll notice here when he says poor, Blind and naked. Remember we said the banking industry was big there. The issue of like a place to help your eyes get healed was big there. And naked. The clothing industry was big there. That, but all those things that Jesus picks up are things that, that they would really kind of have confidence in. They could almost say, are you kidding? We'll never have this problem. We have all those things covered. And Jesus says, but you don't spiritually. You may physically have those covered, but spiritually speaking, they are not covered. You're putting confidence in the physical and you are neglecting the spiritual. We have a tendency to focus on money, possessions, and health. 
It's almost like when you see that in the Laodicean church, you say, hold on just a second. Have other people struggled with this before? I mean, is, is that the Laodicean dream? I mean, to have all those things covered? You ever struggle with overemphasizing the physical rather than the spiritual? You ever find your worth in these things? Do you ever trust in them for happiness or security? It sounds like we can make a God out of those things. They can be our saviors. This really is idolatry. We can hope in them and trust in them. We can, you know, but what's crazy is they, they're really bad ones. These are bad saviors because they do not really save He says, instead, if you elevate them too high, then they will actually destroy you spiritually. They may not in this life, it may look like you have it all together in this life, but it will destroy you spiritually. It sounds like that though, that the church in Laodicea heard these things and there was some level of of repentance and walking in the ways of the Lord. Later, there was a bishop uh, that was actually suffered martyrdom in the 161 to 167 AD in there where, you know, the church may have listened and, and heeded the advice that comes from Jesus here. Verse 18, this is what he says. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Such a powerful way that he illustrates this for them. The church needed to buy gold refined by fire and made pure so that she would be rich in God. To overcome here, and I think uh, really to overcome her compromise with the world, she needed white garments to cover her nakedness. I want you to turn to Revelation 19.8 real quick. We see in Revelation 19.8, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the Fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So put on holiness of living. Return to Christ and walk in those ways that would be honoring to Him. The idea here of, and you can turn back, I just wanted you to kind of note that, but uncovering the shame of your nakedness is language employed of God's accusation of Israel when they participated in idolatry, when they had these false saviors, when they were trusting in someone other than the Lord. To combat their blindness, instead of just having physical eye salve to put on, he, he wants them to put on spiritual eyes so that they might see and understand the dangerous situation that they're in. He wanted them to have a state of sobriety so they could really see and stop being deceived about the situation they were in. Now, 
it also, this, points to the vision of Christ. Remember when you saw Him, maybe in Re- you may remember back in Revelation 1, 13 and 14, the Son of Man clothed with a robe, with a golden sash around His chest. The hairs of His head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. There, there's something of this where they are in this spiritual kind of bankruptcy situation. They're broken, they're needy, and they are in need of the One who really has all those treasures who has the blessing that they need, they are needing to return to Him. Now I'm going to give you a couple other verses just to read you. Isaiah 55, verses 1-3. through Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come. Buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen Diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich foods. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. I will make you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. What's he saying? Only in Christ are true riches, clothing, and insight. Indeed, Jesus himself has established the fountain of true wealth. By his faithful witness. He is saying return to him. Return to him like you did before. Seek after him. He has suffered for you. He died for you. He brought to you what you could not bring to yourself. You are so self-sufficient in these false idols and these false gods that you are trusting in. You have everything. You're in need of nothing. But you, have the, you don't have the very thing that you truly need. You need Christ and Christ alone. Renew your commitment to Him. Come back to Him as you had been with Him before. He is the stable one. He is the faithful one. He is the one you can truly count on. Come back to Christ. So often, like we have the, we know this, but we don't believe it. Our economy can change in a moment. Catastrophe can hit in a moment. We've seen it this week where people are just living their lives normally and think all is well. And in any moment, trouble can strike and all that you hoped in in this age can be lost. Buy yourself something that will never be lost. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. This this idea here tells us that they are the church. They're in covenant love with Christ. They're in covenant with Him. Therefore, He is pursuing them. Jesus pursues His people with the desire of crushing those idols, those false saviors, so that they might grow and be what they need to be. It's almost like He's graciously coming to them before they have to experience the extreme pain and struggle of being in that situation. He's judging them in order to rescue them. You know, we do this with our children. And I, I mean, I, oftentimes with Will, like, because he's the older one, and that's the only experience I have with one growing up and able to talk. and all. But with him, sometimes he'll get all upset and you'll say, go to your room. Go to your room. And you send him to his room and you give him a minute to sit in there. And then, but on his way, sometimes he'll kind of walk to his room and you'll hear that door kind of slam hard. Boom. And then I'll wait a minute and I'll go in there and and I might knock on the door and say, Hey, William, dad needs to talk to you. I don't want to talk to, I don't, I don't want to talk to anybody right now. 
William, dad needs to talk to you. He's knocking on the door because here's the deal. Why? Although he may still get in trouble with me, very likely will. I am pursuing him. Why? Because I love him. Because I have a relationship with him. Because I care about him. And I'm pursuing him because I want to restore intimacy even when he's running from it. Even when he says, I want to be all alone, you're saying, that is not good for him, so I'm going to pursue him with love. That's what Jesus is doing. He is pursuing the church. He's pressing into her. He's saying, I love you. I want relationship with you. I am going to be about your good. I'm going to seek after you. Some people think it's this way. They think if when they start rebelling against the Lord, that this is what he does. I'm done with them. They, they were with me and now they're gone. And if they don't come back, they're lost forever. The reality is that is not true. Jesus says, I go to my church and I run after her. I press into her. She is my bride. I purchased her out of the bondage of slavery. I gave myself for her. She will not be lost. She may run, she may run away, she may seek to do whatever she's doing, but I will pursue her relentlessly. Just like you pursue your children, you pursue them relentlessly. Why? Because you love them. He is in covenant love with His people. And you see this in Song of Solomon 5.2. The man comes, he says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. I mean, I'm sorry, the woman here. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. It's this covenant love, a passionate love. Now listen to me. He is initiating that passionate love with his bride. And she should respond in the same way. That's the picture here. Jesus standing there knocking on the door of the church. Seeking her out. Not letting her go. Although she has been, the idea here is, although she has been adulterous, he is running after her relentlessly. If you're his child, you are his child. He will pursue you because he loves you. That's one of the most comforting things in all the world. Verse 21 and 22. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. Sometimes. When we. In this life accomplish things. We begin to think. We have all we need. We think we don't really need anything. If we are honest. Sometimes we are driven by desire to get to a place. Where we can say we are in need of nothing. One of the most dangerous places to be is having no need for anyone or anything. 
People that get to that place, you will watch them often self-destruct. Do you know that? They have no need. They're totally self-sufficient. And it's an enemy to their reliance on God. Jesus says, those who overcome, they will sit with me on the throne. So often when we put confidence in material things, They're changing all the time. And you may say, I'm king of the mountain today and be at the very bottom tomorrow. We never know. But the reality is, Jesus, there's a security with him that he reigns over all. And that those who come in fellowship with him experience that there's no economic downturn, no war, no enemy, no nothing that will be able to defeat them. Jesus is saying, you come to me and you find comfort and security and the only one that has it. Come to me, you trust me, hold fast to me and you will reign with me. So what false saviors are you trusting in today? Are you self-deceived? Are you foolishly believing that you're in need of nothing because you have so much? Repent, renew your fellowship with Christ, turn to him. And find true peace. Let's pray. Father we thank you for your word. I ask that you would help us. Fall in love with Christ. That we would see that he relentlessly pursues us. Because he loves us. That even when we find these false saviors. That we think. Will give us the peace. And the comfort. And the protection that we need. He still relentlessly pursues us. And we praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen. If you would stand with me at this time.